Welcome to episode 62. Do you ever wonder why nutrition advice seems to change so frequently? Or why food is never addressed at your doctor's appointment? Or is even considered laughable in the context of helping to recover the body from disease? If you've asked these questions or wondered these thoughts, then stick around because today's episode is a really interesting chat covering big pharma, mainstream medical education, nutrition research complexities, and fundamentally, food is medicine and diet against disease and where they sit in the entire conversation. So, let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? I hope you've had a good week and have plans to eat at least five different colored vegetables today because simply that shit is important. <laughs> so welcome back to another interview episode. If you're new here, my name is Maddie Lansdowne and it is my mission to coach 150 individuals to create the sustainable, healthy lifestyle that you truly want before the end of 2020. Now, I really am pretty excited to introduce today's guest because he truly understands the power of nutrition to heal and fix biological problems within the body in a way that most nutrition experts wouldn't even know about themselves. And I myself, I'm really excited to learn some stuff today. So, who am I talking about? Dr. Darren Schmidt, whom after spending 17 years working on his family farm, gaining a profound understanding of plant biology and farming practices, including, of course, the impact of herbicides and pesticides on fruits and vegetables, went on to become a chiropractor who, through his research and study, discovered that nutrition was, in fact, the answer to many human biological and medical problems, a sentiment that you know I share strongly. He has been focusing on nutrition since 1998 via his own clinic called the Nutritional Healing Center of Ann Arbor in Michigan in the US, and his clinic is within the top 1% of private nutrition clinics in the country. He has also used his unique set of skills and knowledge to educate and train over 4,500 doctors all over the US and has a very educational YouTube channel, which I myself just absolutely love and highly recommend. And it has over 130,000 subscribers with over 11 million views on his videos. Just insane. Dr. Schmidt, you are a heavyweight of the natural health world and I'm stoked to have you here. So, a big warm welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Maddie. Not a problem at all. Uh, now, we were just chatting before we decided to hit record. We're chatting about YouTube. And as I said myself, I've learned a lot from your YouTube channel. And obviously, with 11 million views, a lot of people have. But can you share with the listeners what is actually happening in the social media space in the context of natural health and in particular, what's happening on YouTube? Sure. So, um, back in 2016, when President Trump was elected, um, the social media giants like Facebook, Twitter, um, Google uh, disagreed with uh, Trump and they, they vowed to never have this happen again. So they created some algorithms that would suppress um, ideas, communication related to um, Trump's message. Later, they applied that to healthcare, And the reason why is because for really two reasons. Um, number one, they want to break into the Chinese market. So in China, there's a billion people or more. In the United States, there's only 320 million. And in order to open up a business or make deals in China, you have to go through the government first. It's a communist nation. It's a capitalistic uh, economy, but the government controls everything. So 
in order to to do this, um, the government in China will um, suppress information that they want suppressed. And so YouTube is grooming and these social media people are grooming Americans to get used to that sort of culture. And one thing that's not allowed, um, or um, well, for example, one thing that's not allowed in China is religion. So if you talk about religion on YouTube, that's will will eventually be suppressed. Also, safety, finance, healthcare, politics, all those subjects are taboo in China. Now, the other aspect of this related to healthcare specifically is that Google has turned down a lot of alternative healthcare websites, deranking them in their search engine optimization. And this is true for YouTube too, because YouTube is owned by Google. And it's a total attack on um, on alternative healthcare, politics, safety, finance, the things I already mentioned before. But um, what I found out recently is that at the same time, they're deranking the alternative healthcare, like the truth, they're um, uplifting medical pharma um, websites. And there's just three, for example, that are really uh, got a big boost. Um, one's called Medline or uh, Medical News Today. And I can't remember all the names of them, but they got a big boost. And it turns out these three medical websites are not owned by medical doctors. They're actually owned by advertising companies who are brokering deals between uh, junk food, pharma, and then YouTube. So, you know, it's always good to be the broker because whether the economy goes up or down, you're still making money. You know, it's like a, you know, like a real estate person, you know, when houses are, um, the housing market is collapsing, they sell more houses. And when the housing market is doing really good, they're just going to make more money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's what these brokers are doing. And um, they have the big dollars. So YouTube is, is catering to these uh, advertisers. So the point is, YouTube first started to attack my channel in March of 2018, and I had a viral video going on for four years. And then suddenly in March, it was completely dead. And um, and then again in June of 2019, um, they started to um, crash my YouTube channel. I had three, 500 to 700 new subscribers per day, and within four days, I had 30. And then I had about 35,000 views per day. And within four days, I had 5,000. And that's even worse now. Here it is in November. It's just the numbers are just going down, down, down. And um, so I'm, I'm working on ways to get around that. And um, I'm trying to do like new thumbnails and stuff like that and be more prolific making videos. But I really have to get away from that because um, I need to like uh, build up my blog. and. Um, direct people through like online learning courses that I make. And I'm working on this. I have a guy that we're making online learning courses and eBooks and blogs and I'll do videos. And most of them, you know, 85, 90% of this will be free. I'll have some more advanced courses online that'll be, that'll cost money. But, and and again, most of the material that I'm using anyways, is free on YouTube. You can use YouTube as a search engine and find the information that I'm delivering. It's just that YouTube is not sharing. And plus they've, unsubscribe people like my office manager and my top employee who's been with me for 12 and a half years. And my, my mom, even she told me that she got unsubscribed from YouTube. So I've had, you know, people tell me on my channel, they had to resubscribe. So they're just, you know, it's going to get worse over time. And they just released over the weekend, their new terms of service, which is that they will uh, deplatform or take off their platform, anybody they want for 
the reason that they call commercially non-viable. So they're de-ranking people and then the channel becomes commercially non-viable and they use that as the excuse to now just wipe them off the channel. They did this with a guy named Jimmy Moore about four months ago. He's a keto author and lecturer. He's got many books out. He had millions of views. He had hundreds of videos. And then suddenly on Twitter, he said, hey, my YouTube channel is gone. What happened? Well, they just took it off. They just deleted it. They didn't give him any warnings. And they didn't, um, he didn't have any strikes on his channel. So this is what happens when you're working with communists, right? They're unpredictable. They make new rules. They don't follow their own rules. <laughs> and, and it's sad and it's funny at the same time. But, you know, as a, as a collective um, in the alternative healthcare world, we need to find new solutions and move over to a different platform, possibly BitChute which is a platform that's based off of uh, like cryptocurrency blockchain and nobody can take you off of BitChute. So that's where we stand right now. It's just a battle. This battle has been going on since, you know, before biblical times, you know? Yeah. It's like alternative healthcare, getting people better with nutrients versus drugging people. It's not, it's a whole battle going on for thousands of years. And we, here we are, we're just doing the same battle just on a different platform we're doing on, on the internet. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the work Jimmy Moore has done. He has been a huge voice in the intermittent fasting, water fasting, and keto space. And I didn't actually know that, so thanks for sharing that. But here we are all sitting here in the age of the internet thinking that this is the biggest thing for free speech ever in human history, but it seems that no matter where you go, it seems that it's possible that you can be gagged and forced to be in alignment with corporate interests or, well, eliminated for some people. And I actually got that terms and conditions email myself. I have a channel despite only having one video up currently. <laughs> Regular content is coming in 2020 crew. <laughs> but I got that terms and conditions email too. And I say, you know, if it's quote, quote, unquote, not commercially viable. And what does that even mean? Who determines that? Whoever ends up being paid, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So you've done a lot of great work before social media even existed, which puts you a few decades ahead of me in regards to career, research, and knowledge. And as someone that is, I guess, really inspired by your work and the content that you put out, and I've learned a lot from your YouTube, despite what is currently happening with it, um, I was wondering, can you tell us a little about your story and about how you were able to build such a successful business that, that is essentially a food is medicine business and to finally arrive at the point you're at today because it isn't every day that I get to speak to someone that has built a successful business in this niche space. So I'd love to hear that journey. Well, I started off working on the family farm, like you mentioned at the beginning. I spent 17 summers there um, in grade school, high school, college. And the point here is that nobody in my family is in healthcare. I mean, both my sisters are, but aunts and uncles and grandparents and, you know, both my parents, the other farmers are teachers. So I didn't have much exposure to healthcare at all, but I wanted to be a doctor and help people in some way. And I went to college and I was a pre-med. And before I applied for medical school and uh, take the MCAT, the entrance exam, I interviewed a dozen students and doctors of medicine and asked them about their profession. And none of them encouraged me to go into medicine. So it was 0 for 12. And I figured, well, if they don't, you know, encourage me, then I'm not even going to try. So I went into, I looked at optometry, podiatry, veterinary medicine. And then I spent a couple hours with a chiropractor in my hometown. And he showed me what he was doing, you know, the manual labor, which I was used to doing, like adjusting spines. And it, it was holistic too. So he showed me that you can have a problem in the back causing pain down the leg. 
And I was like, oh, I get that. That's holistic. And being a farmer, you got to be holistic, right? Because you plant a seed in the ground and it doesn't instantly pop up. You got to like take care of it and have um, that holistic viewpoint. So I went to chiropractic school and I went to a lot of seminars outside of school. And I went to a nutrition seminar and I decided that this is why Americans are so sick or people in the Western countries are so sick is because our food supply is so bad. So I'll be a chiropractor who focuses on nutrition. So in 97, I graduated and then I started nutrition in 98. I went low carb in 99. I learned about the Watson A. Price Foundation in 99. I went keto in 2016 and now carnivore in 2018. And the whole point is to get as many people well as I can um, inexpensively and quickly and using very conservative, very easy to apply, you know, supplements and diet. And if somebody needs drugs, they can do that later. If somebody needs surgery, there's, that's always available. So like in the United States, there's a million medical doctors. So we are not deficient in medical doctors, that's for sure. But uh, we need way more like natural healthcare providers. So that's, the, that's my backstory and how I got into this. Yeah, nice. And I, I totally agree. We definitely need more natural health practitioners in this space. And it kind of, kind of comes back to the YouTube conversation about gagging or blocking that demographic of practitioners to or from proliferating throughout society when the conventional dogma is that those people like us, I guess, are just crazy hippies <laughs> and, not, and thus they're not able to practice and what they say is nonsense and rah, rah, rah. And that's why I'm so impressed that you have built this business, the business that you've built being food is medicine and that, you know, given that there are so many efforts put forward by government or industry or advertising and marketing companies and now even the social consciousness that is built on a misled and preconceived notion that are all designed to actively bury the natural health message. So, right. yeah, it's, it's really impressive. And the other question I'm really curious about is what motivated you to start educating medical professionals on nutrition? Was it simply because you saw the lack of food education, the mainstream system? Because that was one of my biggest aha moments on my journey from the dark side, <laughs> working in a cancer hospital to being you know passionate about food as medicine, diet, and nutrition, advocate, and voice and whatnot, was that learning that medical doctors received little to no nutrition or food education. We eat two to six times of every single day of our entire lives and they receive no nutrition education. It was just the biggest light bulb moment for me. And in fact, I actually asked a friend that graduated medicine a few months ago. I said, as the freshest medical doctor in the country, Australia's newest doctor, tell me, what did you learn about food? Oh, man. <laughs> and bless her. She said, looking quite unsure, um, eat more vegetables and fiber is important. <laughs> and that was about the entirety of the info that she shared. And so acknowledging that these medical experts really are only working with the very very limited tools they're given, was this the reality that motivated you to start educating that group of people? Yeah, basically. I mean, I come from uh, the background of like, I really care for people. I don't like to pe see people suffer. And I like to see people when they're doing well, they're thriving and they're happy and they're you know, taking care of their kids and working their job well, and they're not concerned about their health because they have good health. Like, that's my viewpoint. So as opposed to, you know, how do I make my next paycheck or something? And, you know, my first four years of of uh, being in practice, I was in the poverty level. As a matter of fact, my first year in practice, I worked three days a week on the farm and three days a week in the office, and I made $4,000, and that was it. Oh, wow. And I had lunch with a chiropractor in my hometown 
And he said to me, he wanted to retire and he wanted to sell me his practice. And I said, no, thanks. And he said, are you sure you could be, you could be making six figures real fast? I said, yeah, I'm sure. I just, I need to do it the right way. I need to do it my way. And, uh, you know, it took me, you know, years and years to build up the practice. And so, but I wouldn't have it any other way because my practice, number one, being insurance free, patients are paying me directly. I am, uh, you know, I, I am completely, uh, dependent on them and they, and I need to get them well right now. I know doctors that get insurance and they don't get anybody well, but they continue to get paid because that's the system. You know, the insurance company is paying them. When I did take insurance, I had to fill out these questionnaires about the patient care and their questions were, what are you going to do? How long will it take before the treatment plan is over? Never once did they ask the question, will the patient get better? That's not the system. They're not trying to get people better. They want, they, you know, it's just an exchange of money. And in the meantime, patients are suffering. So anyways, the last time I took insurance was November 1st of 2005. So anyways, the answer your question as to why I do the things that I'm doing is because I need to get like cut it down to me taking care of a patient. And then in exchange for that, you know, they're paying me. If I don't get a patient well, they're going to leave my care. You know, if I don't give them good answers, they're going to go somewhere else. I'm. This is the free market. This is where it's at, as opposed to health insurance, which is socialism by proxy. It's controlling groups of people uh, through force and through, you know, hard coercion with money. And I've completely, like, removed myself from the socialism by proxy system. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I guess the other thing in that aspect is that when you remove yourself from insurance and clients and patients finance are actually financing their own particular health journey, on a patient level, it must impact the response, the level of responsibility as well because I find that it's a thing in Australia, right? So, most people do not have to pay for healthcare here and that comes inherently flawed with an outsourcing of responsibility for most people, not everyone because... In that context, you have no skin in the game, so to speak. And when you're on a health journey and it seems that it isn't even about getting well from the patient's view, but more about collecting what they're owed by the government or claiming their their freebies in a sense. And and thus, people go through these cycles over years and, and, and then end up saying, I've seen this doctor, I saw that specialist and I've tried this therapy and I've tried that therapy and it, it just those things just don't work for me. It just doesn't work for me. This is my life. And, you know, I'm sure we've both heard that story so many times from people and of course it differs from person to person as to how big that piece plays in each individual's story or narrative of their health and their own reality but without the skin in the game from a financial aspect or whichever aspect people consider important but in this case we're talking financial as a result one does not take an active part in their own healing because they're inherently outsourcing everything to the guy sitting across the desk from them in their appointments Right. And then the doctor does not have the demand, if you will, to learn more. So I, I still have people that I, I, I'm better now as a, as a clinician than ever before, but I still get really tricky patients and I have to learn more and more and more. And then when I look at keto doctors, the medical doctors, yeah, they take insurance, but they have taken on the responsibility of answering the question, what can I provide to my patients? that will provide, you know, the most benefit. So then they found themselves 
into the keto world. And then they get attacked. And they get attacked by conventional MDs, nutritionists, dietitians, and even their licensing board. So Professor Tim Noakes and Dr. Gary Fetke, and there's a couple other people, where they spent many months or even years, Dr. Noakes, four years, and a million dollars to defend his license because um, the South African Dietetics Board said you cannot recommend a low-carb diet because it's dangerous. And he proved that there is no proof that it's dangerous. As a matter of fact, it's very beneficial. Same thing with Gary Fecky. He's an orthopedic surgeon in New Zealand. And he proved that what he was, his recommendations were, yeah, they're going to save people's legs who are diabetic. And he's, you know, tired of cutting people's legs off. And Sean Baker, he's another MD. And he gets attacked all the time on social media. But these are, you know, I consider them giants in, in the keto world. And they've put everything on the line. You know, they've risked everything. Sean Baker lost his license because his hospital system was losing surgical patients because he's recommending low carb, which saves people's legs who are diabetic. So they, they, you know, made a compromise where he got his license taken away and then he got it reinstated um, maybe, you know, last year or something. So anyways, there are people that do take insurance and they still have this care for other humans to continue searching to find the best answers. And they all, they all end up with the same answers. And that is low carb. And for some people, it's low carb uh, enough to get into ketosis. And you will definitely want to control your blood sugar, raise your ketones up. And then on top of that, I've taken it further and further into supplements for detoxification and supplements for uh, helping your body kill pathogens, like, you know, like mold and stuff like that, or fungus and parasites. So I've even taken it beyond like the standard keto people. And that's been my career too, is, you know, 22 years now of uh, what supplements can we do that are, they're inexpensive and they, re they basically replace drugs, you know, so that's been a, quite a journey. <laughs> so picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below.
It's interesting that you mention all of those MDs, and one of them that you mentioned being from New Zealand is actually from Australia, Gary Fetke. He's from Tasmania, which is one of Australia's states. And for those that don't know the story, for that over a 15 to 20 year period, he noticed that his surgeries went from just a couple of amputations per month, like one or two, up to like 20 to 30 per month. And he began giving nutritional advice to stop these poor patients having to undergo severe and complex and life-altering surgery. And he almost had his license taken away by the medical board and he had to go and get proper nutrition and dietetics degree, which he did and um, so that he could keep his license and continue to give this genuinely helpful information to patients that, you know, could help them without having to go under the knife. And so, you know, he kept his license and kept helping people in the way that you mentioned and, and you know, that kind of problem of the system controlling what doctors do, even the good ones, is everywhere. Yeah, isn't that Gary Fecky? Yeah, he's an Aussie. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I thought he was in New Zealand, but okay, so he's in Tasmania. Awesome. So since we're on the topic, do you think it is possible to infiltrate the education bodies, universities, colleges, academies, the medical board? Do you think it's possible to get the correct information and education into these establishments? Or do you think the tyrannical structures that are fast food and big pharma and the AMA, are they undefeatable entities that us natural health hippies will forever be pegged against in the worst possible way? No, this is defeatable. And there is one answer to that question, and it comes down to the USDA Dietary Guidelines Committee for 2020. Every five years, um, the USDA has to change their food pyramid or my plate or whatever. They have to change it. So next year, they're going to make a new recommendation. And the person who is really educating us on getting involved, her name is Nina Teicholz. And she wrote a book called The Big Fat Surprise. But she's sort of um, uh, forming an army to communicate to the USDA Dietary Guidelines Committee, whether it's by email, because you can submit comments, or actually show up live in person. And I did this a few months ago. They had their first live uh, public comment day where everybody had three minutes and I attended that and I spoke for three minutes. This is in Washington, DC. The next time they do this is January uh, in, in uh, Houston. And so the dietary guidelines committee has chosen to ignore um, like superior quality uh, studies. And about 85% of the studies that they're going to look at is actually epidemiology, which is not science at all. It's just a survey. And from those surveys, you get this idea that meat is bad, and uh, which is not a true statement. Every time you test scientifically whether or not meat is bad or not, it shows that it's good. Meat has never caused cancer. It's never caused heart disease or diabetes. Saturated fat is, does not cause any disease. Um, but the problem is that epidemiology is telling us incorrect information. So the Dietary Guidelines Committee is using epidemiology as their main way of determining what to do next. And they're going against the law. The law says that they have to use the preponderance of science. It doesn't say use the preponderance of survey or opinion or poll, which is what epidemiology is. Epidemiology is not a science. So everything's backwards. But once the USDA you know, comes down with their dietary guidelines, it affects the Western world. It affects England, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, you know, 
the primary English speaking countries. And that's where we have to stop it. Otherwise, it's a grassroots effort. But if the government demands that the military and the schools, you know, school lunches and the universities and the dietetics professionals and nutritionists, and they all have to follow the guidelines. So that's why all these people are saying the wrong thing. They're all saying eat high fiber, eat high carb, eat 250 grams of carbs a day minimum and avoid fat and avoid animal products. It's all crazy backwards. And it's because of this one committee. And right now it doesn't look too good. It looks like for 2020, they're going to come out with the same old stupid information and they're going to come out with a report. It's going to be about 500 pages. And then they, then they have a, you know, like a one pager and then they have like a logo and then they have another, you know, they, they come up with several documents. All they have to do is one line in the 500 page document that says a low carb diet is a viable option to improve health or something like that. Just one sentence out of 500 pages. And that releases them of the liability of giving incorrect information. And then it frees the rest of us up to actually form a diet that can, you know, really benefit us. All right, we are finally here. Do you want more energy, focus, and productivity? Obviously, everyone does. <laughs> but maybe you too want fat loss, reduced inflammation in your body, and improved digestion as well. If you've listened to my episodes on intermittent fasting or via any of my social media talking about the benefits and importance of reducing your feeding window, and you actually maybe know a few people who have had mixed results with intermittent fasting, and you just want to try and figure out, is, is it right for you? Well, guess what? I've got you covered. <laughs> As you know, it's my personal mission to coach 150 individuals to create the sustainable, healthy lifestyle that they truly want by December 2020. And as a part of that, there is a link in the show notes below to my new, my brand new free ebook called Is Intermittent Fasting Right For Me? Which will provide the answer for you as to whether or not you're the right person to implement an intermittent fasting schedule or not. So scroll down below, click the link, chuck in your deets and grab the free download because this really will clear things up for you. All right, let's get back into the show. Or something like that. Just one sentence out of 500 pages and that releases them of the liability of giving incorrect information. And then it frees the rest of us up to actually form a diet that can, you know, really benefit us. And ketosis is the best diet for type 2 diabetes. It beats out veganism. It beats out everything else. And then, you know, ketosis is the best hope for cancer. I've, I've had 11 patients reverse their cancer with ketosis. I have a practitioner in my office. She just told me this morning she's had number six reverse her cancer with ketosis. I've had other practitioners in my office. You know, so yeah. And when I said this on Twitter back in February, I got attacked. You know, like it's really like scary for some people that ketosis, you know, like a natural diet can actually reverse cancer. It's just, it's just insane. So anyways, I'm working on this and there's other people, other medical doctors and naturopaths and chiropractors and on social media, you know, and in person, they're, they're, they're changing the way that we're looking at nutrition. We're going back to the diet that we used to have hundred years ago when cancer was low and heart disease was low and, and all that. So there is some hope. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that stuff that you're referencing, I first learned or my first really credible source of learning was Thomas Seyfried's Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. And I think it's a good place to start for anyone that has cancer, is precancerous or is in the monitoring phase because it really sort of challenges and changes your perspective on cancer as a disease of diet and lifestyle, which is where many chronic health issues originate, in my opinion. (laughs) And the other thing is interesting mention about the meat as well with those epidemiology studies. I don't think people realize that nutrition research is exceptionally difficult to put together. And then, of course, they go and compare that usually against the American, the standard American diet, which is predominantly fast food. And you know that most meat consumers eat meat from, say, In-N-Out Burger, McDonald's or Burger King or whatever fast food chain it might be. But in that context... Meat is bad. (laughs) Yes, it is bad because you're eating it in this horrific concoction of nutritionally deficient, um, not even really food, but let's say materials that are not doing the human body any favors. And that's why as well, these other diets and approaches get so much leverage, positive leverage, like the the vegan diet or the Game Changers documentary that pulled the wool over so many people's eyes so convincingly, because it really is a shit ton better than the standard American crap food diet. And so I guess I want to highlight that nutrition research is hard to do because it most often relies on people reporting their own food intake for the day. So science, which is meant to be specific and measurable and you know hyper-focused in this context, relies on a heap of randoms just remembering what they ate and roughly how much. And that's executed by sending them home with a survey or we hold them in a facility and monitor them every, like monitor every single calorie macronutrient that goes into the body and monitor how the body uses that food as best we can, which we can't really do very effectively, but we can actually never hold humans in a single place long enough to collect anything that's you know, meaningful in the long term. And of course, then there's the healthy user bias. People give false information because they know they're being watched. And my very own clients are victim to this too. It's, it's a human th- thing. Like it's just a reality of being watched. And then there, of course, the other side of the healthy user bias, which is people that are actual health nuts are really interested in being part of a health study. And so they want to be like, oh yeah, I'm really healthy. Check, check out how healthy I am. Because, which is amazing for them, but that doesn't doesn't really represent the everyday person. Right. So when you look at these studies, um, the best studies are randomized control trials or clinical trials. So there are people that are documenting the randomized control trials when it comes to low carb versus low fat. So the vegan diet, vegetarian diet is more low fat, higher carb. And then the ketogenic diet is uh, low carb, right? So just keep those categories in mind. So there's a group in the UK called the Public Health Collaboration, P-H-C-U-K.org. And they've compiled and analyzed these randomized control trials. And they said that low carb beats low fat 32 to nothing. And then the USDA 2015 Dietary uh, Committee said in their 500-page report that low carb beats low fat 77 to zero. So the low low fat diet loses all the time there's no rct that shows that low uh, low fat is better than low carb so that's like a you know the 77 nails in the coffin if you will and 32 more that um you want to go low carb for your ideal health 
I agree completely. And it's definitely a message that I share a fair amount on the podcast and with clients as well and just really try to help people realize how heavily we are exposed to very, very high carb uh, in our macronutrient ratio in our daily diet. And it's it's like the culture that has been going for decades. What what does everyone leave the house on a frequent basis to do? Go and get bread and milk. Sometimes, you know, every day, sometimes multiple times a day, bread and milk, bread and milk. It's the way we've been cultured, right? And what a multi-million or billion or maybe even trillion dollar, you know, problem if we dare disrupt that deeply seated dietary routine by telling people to stop doing that because it's bad for their health. Yeah, exactly. It does take a lifestyle and then it, it, it needs to start with the government and then the, uh, the dietitians, nutritionists, university professors, the school programs like fifth grade, you know, here's what you eat, those kind of like teachings that can all start to change if the Dietary Guidelines Committee does the right thing next year. Oh, yeah, you're, you're certainly right. Um, can I talk more on the cancer thing for just a second in the context of these terribly put together epidemiological studies that result that resulted in meats being listed as a probable carcinogen, particularly red meats, and some meats being listed as a class one carcinogenic. Can you talk more uh, more as to why that happened, why the data showed that, and why red meat does not cause cancer? Yeah. So there's a woman named Dr. Georgia Each. She's a psychiatrist. And I forgot what school she's at, um, but she treats the students. I want to say she's at Harvard, but she's got a great website, um, diagnosisdiet.com. And she's completely debunked this World Health Organization um, statement that meat is a uh, class 2 carcinogen. What they did at the World Health Organization is they formed a subcommittee called the IARC, IARC. And they're all vegans, number one. Some of them have spent their whole career attacking meat. And what they did is they were supposed to come out with like 700 studies or 800 studies that they're going to evaluate. Well, they only evalu- evaluated like 30 of them. And I, I, you know, I'm rounding that number. I don't remember the exact number. And half of those studies showed that meat does not cause cancer. Well, the other half um, were uh, studies like they did some studies on rats where they gave the rats a toxin to cause cancer and they eliminated calcium out of their diet and then they gave the rats meat and none of them got cancer but they still said that the rats got cancer it's all lies i'm telling you it's all crazy lies so if you want more information on that check out diagnosisdiet.com and search iarc and she's debunked the whole thing <laughs> yeah right and there is an increasing little group of doctors out there too that are sort of doing that same thing. And I don't, I don't necessarily think, or I certainly recommend for my clients and say on the podcast on here regularly that the best option for meat is naturally hunted meat because there is, I don't think there's any argument against the fact that vaccines and antimicrobials and the antivirals and the added hormones and the unnatural sterile living conditions that these animals suffer through and the the, the monstrous amount of grain feed that humans end up ingesting as well. I don't think there's any argument against the fact that these things are actually not healthy for humans and arguably toxic as well. So I don't think that's up for debate, but there is, I guess I'm saying that there's certainly a healthier option that you can even buy better, more healthy meat that's really good for you. But I guess the point is that if you buy, you know, meat and vegetables from the supermarket every day, it's every day, it's not that diet that's going to cause you cancer. Right. Yeah. And then of course there's organic uh, farmers and I got one about 10 miles from my house. So I get meat from her once a month. 
And it's like the best pork chops and the best bacon ever in my life. Oh, man, <laughs> that sounds amazing. You're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I do have a few experiences in the recent past where I end up at the grocery store and I buy regular commercial meat, which you could argue is better than none at all, right? I would argue that all day. But then I eat this meat and then I feel bad, right? I get more congestion or my sleep is off or my heart's racing. So it is best to uh, go with the naturally raised um, animal products as as much as you can. Yeah, I totally agree. And even just the flavor, anything that is naturally hunted or naturally raised, the flavor is just so much better. Right, yeah. One day I had um, a bunch of meat from my freezer from this farmer. I took it down to my parents' house. And my dad's a farmer, you know. And I put all this meat on the grill. I had different cuts, and he chose a pork chop. And he said to me, that was the best pork chop I ever had in my life. What'd you put on it? And I said, nothing. It's just organically raised. <laughs> did you turn him into a believer? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> now, you have so much amazing content. So where can the listeners find you online to learn more? My main platform is still the YouTube channel. And so just search my name there. And then I have my website for my office, which is the NHCAA.com. And that stands for the Nutritional Healing Center Ann Arbor. Yeah, that sounds great. And for the listeners, of course, I'll put Darren's links in the show notes down below. And Darren, this has been great. I'd love to get you back on the show soon. I know last time we caught up, we talked a lot about cancer and cachexia. So working in a cancer hospital myself, I would love to dive down the rabbit hole on that. But for now, to wrap up the show, I'd love to know what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Well, one piece of health information I wish everybody knew about was exactly what we talked about, like reducing the carbs and eliminating sugar. So you want your body to be so deficient in sugar that it's making its own. And then the cells are now using fat. So your body will hold about five grams of sugar all the time. And, you know, once you drink a, you know, soda pop, now you just consume 40 grams of sugar. You just overloaded your body. But, you know, lower the blood sugar so low that you're burning ketones. And that that's when you get all these fantastic health benefits, including killing cancer cells and reversing diabetes and repairing your tissues. Now, not everybody can um, do that comfortably right away. It may take a few months or even years to be comfortable physically with ketosis, but the native state of the body is ketosis. That's my number one thing um, that I wish everybody knew is that the native state of the body is the ketogenic state. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time and your wisdom and sharing all of that here on the show. I'm certain you've opened up some eyes to a deeper truth and helped people realize that a bit more is going on than meets the media-driven eye. <laughs> right, you're welcome, Maddie. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Not a problem, mate. We'll catch you soon. Okay, bye. See you later, mate. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode.
Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavor to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.